Have you ever thought about trying to set up a professional sports league? If you have, like me, you've toyed around with the idea, at least theoretically, and you've probably thought about you know, what broadcasting agreements you'd have, the venues, the sponsorship agreements, the, you know, what managers you would bring in, you know, deployment contracts, or the merchandising that goes along with that. Well, our guest today, Ricky Valente, has gone beyond that and is actually in the process of setting up a pioneering new professional basketball league in the United States that is designed to offer collegiate athletes the opportunity to compete in a competition where they get paid. It's a basketball competition. It's very exciting. It raises lots of legal, regulatory and uh, human resources as well as uh, entrepreneurship issues or entrepreneurial issues, I should say. I love speaking to Ricky about this. I think there's lots of really exciting developments that are coming from this that could be learned both for sports in the United States, but also more broadly internationally. I hope you enjoy the show. I certainly love speaking to Ricky. He's a great guy. Remember, if you want all the latest information on the legal issues in sport, go to lawinsport.com. Find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, pretty much most places you can think of. And of course, the one thing that we'd ask, if you like what we do, if you like the podcast, if you like the content that we push out, if you like the fact that we focus on community and doing things that are impactful and helpful to the sports community, please do tell people about it. It would mean a lot to us if you could do that. If you could share any information that you think would be relevant to your colleagues and friends, please take the time to do it. It is greatly appreciated. Other than that, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, Ricky Valente. He's the Chief Executive Officer at the PCL, which stands for the Professional Collegiate League. The PCL is the world's first collegiate sports league um, that is professional and fully professional. He founded it with his co-founder, Andy Schwartz, and with his COO, David West, two-time NBA champion. At the PCL, Ricky basically oversees all the operations. He's, you know, many of you may have come to our annual conference uh, now, just over a year ago, where he described the issues of starting up a new league, issues around broadcasting, getting the teams together, getting all the infrastructure in place. It's a very broad and interesting role, which I hope Ricky will be able to talk to us about shortly. Um, and before he was involved in that and continues, continues to do, he is the founder of Valente Law Firm, where he has a boutique practice that focuses on sports and entertainment and corporate law. Although I think nowadays it's fair to say, Ricky, that you don't have that much time on your hands, uh, given the, yeah. the amount of work involved. Um, how are you doing, first and foremost? You know, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I know doing well is sort of a relative term these days, but, uh, you know, all things considered, uh, I've been pretty fortunate with everything that's going on around the world, how everybody's impacted and, you know, just really trying to figure out how to run a professional sports league remotely from my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and that, so our annual conference, you did a great job. Um, and maybe we can link to the clip or get the clip up from it. Um, you did a fantastic job of, of articulating the real challenges of getting a sports league off the ground. For those that aren't familiar with the PCL, maybe you want to provide a little bit of background into sort of how it came about. And yeah, this is and, a that's a five year journey. <laughs> yeah, but maybe keep it short <laughs> than five years. Right, right. But, but but you know, in essence, or maybe I can describe. You can tell me this is right. In essence you were frustrated with the uh, amateurism principle that drives uh, collegiate sport in the US where athletes aren't allowed to essentially be paid. And yeah. from that, you set up the historical basketball league was the, and then maybe you want to talk about from that point on to the PCL. Absolutely. So yeah, we started as the HBL. Our initial mission was to attempt to have the HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities in the United States, to break away from the from the NCAA, have a, a paid league where 
the HBO would be providing salaries and those institutions would be providing the education. Now, over the course of the last couple of years, as we've shifted to the Professional Collegiate League, uh, we've grown to a model that's entirely independent of educational institutions, which you know is, is a bit foreign to the US. The idea that uh, a college athlete would play in a separate and independent league while still attending college or, or university, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a shift, but we feel like decoupling those two things having this, this professionalized option to provide the basketball component and then having the institution provide the educational component is the best way forward for college athletes. And so it's something that's very relevant uh, given the time we're in now um, and the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the reflection that's taking place uh, around the world. Um, you mentioned that it was the, the historically the black colleges. Uh, do you, for the context, for those who aren't familiar with the, the setup, um, is it writing saying that they, it was felt that um, essentially they won, they weren't necessarily given the opportunity to benefit from uh, education in the same way, but also that the, the way that the, the monetization of college sport had gone, that they weren't seeing a direct benefit of their performance financially? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, HBCUs were the sports powerhouses in the US. And then, you know, as desegregation came along, which was obviously a very good thing, uh, as universities that were historically, you know, white institutions, predominantly white institutions, were then actively recruiting black athletes to come onto their campus and participate on their teams. So then you saw a shift from, uh, you know, like uh, Grambling State, from Howard from Florida A&M, these, these really great HBCU sport powerhouses to now LSU, Florida and Florida State, uh, you know, to, to uh, these institutions that, again, were, were predominantly white or entirely white, historically speaking. And as that shift happened, the HBCUs kind of got left behind out of the, at least left out of the, the discussion of the economic pie and how it was distributed. And over the past Two, dec two to three decades now, what's happened is sort of a, a caste system has been created where HBCUs, Division I HBCUs get, um, you know, anywhere from 500000 to to a million dollars generally in a distribution from the NCAA. Uh, if you're a Division II HBCU, the number drops down to about 37000 And to put that into context... Is that per player or, or sorry, or, or for, for, as a whole? That, that's it. That's all you get from the NCAA, the entire institution. And to put that into context, at Ohio State, their distribution this past year, just from the NCAA's uh, revenue split, was about $51 million. Right. So, you again, you have this system that's then created where those that are at the top of the, of the food chain uh, remain there because economically speaking, you know, how can you compete Yep. in these revenue generating sports with those institutions. And so like most of the discussions we're having at the moment is the legacy or, you know, so the, the, the overall outcome of having uh, obviously integrated colleges and open colleges is fantastic and what it should be, right? So it's not to say, yeah, that's not the problem, but it's just the legacy that's left in terms of the, the, the institutional structures that are there and where the disadvantage is created um, are super interesting. And so, you were, you were looking at that and then obviously you, you then sort of transition from HBL to the PCL, which I think is the interesting one, right? So was it right in saying then saying, so the HBL was initially t targeted towards those institutions and then you've decided that actually that was going to be too, is it, would it be too restrictive in terms of, from a regulatory perspective? Because, you know, you're an entrepreneur as well, right? So from an entrepreneur's perspective, we always talk about this, you know, sometimes it's good to be independent so you can get stuff done. <laughs> Rather than yeah, bureaucracy, from a pragmatic standpoint, you know the institutions. We wouldn't have necessarily been getting into regulatory issues because what we had done was we had said any of our teams that would be participating on these campuses would be club teams rather than varsity programs, which then meant that the NCAA and NJCAA and NAIA regulations we would have sidestepped them because they have no regulatory power over club sports on a campus. It falls within student life as opposed to the athletic department. So we were comfortable with that. However, what we found was even at these institutions, these HBCUs, 
they felt strongly that athletes should not necessarily be compensated. And so we found very quickly that from a mission alignment standpoint, that wasn't a great match. Uh, there was also a, a good bit, and this is in higher oh, sorry, education and is, that, is, that, is, that, and is that just one thing I've never really thought about as much is that I know in some of the institutions here, they, they had also I've been told because I never went to <laughs> one of the top 10 schools, but they say one of the top 10 universities here that at least two or three of them I know, they dissuade people from having part-time jobs, for example, because they believe that um, it distracts them from their studies. And I'm sure it does actually, but you know, nevertheless, people need to earn, often need to earn to put themselves through university. Was it, uh, was it, so for them, is it athletes shouldn't be paid or remunerated or was it all students should not really be working? And that's, was it, you know, where, where did that, where was it? Where was the split? It was 100% focused on athletes and one of their biggest concerns, which still kind of baffles me to this day was providing security for paid athletes on a college campus there seemed to be an inordinate amount of fear around the idea that if you had a paid athlete on a campus, that other students on that campus would target that individual. And they had nothing to suggest that this was factual. And we even would counter with, well, have you ever had, you know, a, a trust fund kid on your campus? You know, have you ever had a wealthy student on yeah. your campus where they targeted? Did you feel the need to provide them with additional security if wealth and you know notoriety is yeah. your only concern political involvement but, no doubt they've got you know diplomats children and uh, exactly so uh, that i feel like it was a rather disingenuous thing but that was what was constantly pushed back towards us is you know hey are you going to be providing private security for these athletes while they're on our campus because we can't guarantee their safety sort of thing which and, and do you do you believe again, that do you believe from these sort of concerns that the people raised do you think they are I wouldn't say the word, I was trying to think of the right way to phrase this. Do you think that their heartfelt, heartfelt belief, so they believe it, they generally are concerned about it, rather than just come trying to come up with, a, with an excuse as such, they generally, even though it may seem ridiculous when you're saying it now, that, that you know, okay, I can see that there's some concern there, but how you know, it should be able to be dealt with. Uh, do you think it's actually that, or do you think it's um, they don't like change? Uh, what's the... What's the backstory? I think, well, there was one institution in particular, I won't say the name of it, that we got the closest to signing an agreement with. And the process took close to six months. Like we got down to the point of, of a contract in front of them. Their, their signing bonus check for the institution was, was ready to go. And we got the question of, well, hold on. Can we sign this? But can we agree that we're not going to pay the athletes? And at that point, we, we pulled out of the deal as much as, as they pulled out because we realized, you know, again, from a mission alignment standpoint, it just wasn't matching. But in the course of that conversation, my takeaway from it was that the institution, much like what goes on right now within the NCA, the institution wanted to keep as much of the value created as possible. They didn't want to have to share it with the athletes. Mm -hmm. They felt like you know, if, if we as an institution participate in your league, that the revenues you generate are going to be the result of our institution and not a, as a result of the athletes, uh, athletic performance and notoriety, or even of whatever you put in place as a league. So I think that it was, it was selfish in intent. And then they just tried to come up with, with disingenuous reasons to try to push us away from the idea of compensating the athletes. So I can... You know, one of the things from some sort of institutional thinking, right? And I'm not an expert on this matter whatsoever, as you as you'll probably tell from my next statement. <laughs> but the uh, again, from from an institutional perspective, you can see that. Oh, I can see at least the institutions may believe though that the the, the as opposed to the the talent causing the interest. Right, or generating the interest and therefore the revenue, they would say the infrastructure that they provide, which is costly in any comes because of the fact they offer other academic uh, courses and, and so forth, right? I can see to a degree why they m may believe that to be true, but we, college sport in the, in the US is such a big attraction 
and has such significant revenues is I think it's hard um, as we've seen with recent cases, right? So to detach the two to say that it's just the institution people are interested in. And I think, you know, I've spoke to a bunch of people at various colleges and they tell me how much one individual athlete may sell in, in jerseys, for example, and it's like millions and millions of pounds worth attached to that athlete's name branded on a Jersey um, or at least not branded, but his name, the number at least. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause as of right now, you cannot sell a college athlete's Jersey with their name on it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. This is one of the age old arguments and one of the things that the PCL business model is going to totally put to the test. The idea that are people watching the game because of the name on the front of the Jersey or the name of the, on the back of the Jersey. And we are confident in a range of data points that it's the latter, that frankly, there, there's actually more volatility in consumer behavior as it relates to watching college sports than there are in professional sports based on wins and losses. And which makes sense, you know, the, mm. there's been this sort of warping of what is a good institution in the United States. And if you go and look at the power rankings of basketball and football, and then you go and look at you know, whatever outlets, you know, top university ranking list, there's a lot of overlap. And part of that is because once you start to think of institutions as successful sports institutions, you start to think that it's a better institution altogether. Yeah. And this even happens within the academic community. Well, well, well as I say, this is also, this is aligned to, um, I did a podcast recently with Professor Simon Rowe from SOAS, right, about the power of sport and sports diplomacy. Right, it's the perception of is the reason why governments invest so heavily in sport as well. It can change a mood, right? It can change a, how a country is perceived, right? How a nation perceives itself. It has that sort of power. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. And so, you, you and Andy get together, right? And so you set up the HBL, and you think to yourself, right? We think we've got something here. You're talking to people. Um, at what point does David come on board? Is he your first, is he the next person, or when does so when the does, next how did you, how person? Did you, how did you go about building the team? Sorry. Yeah, the third person in was actually Keith Sparks, our chief development officer. He, he's our, our fourth co-founder. Keith was a formerly the associate athletic director at Stanford. Uh, he also, from there, he was a labor attorney in California and then transitioned into clean energy uh, for the last 15 to 20 years or so. And really the way that we were able to start building our team to get our first round of investment into the league was through Patrick Ruby's vice sports article on the league that Amazing. came out. Andy and I, you know, up to that point, Andy and I had been on and off working on this together for uh, a little over a year. We'd been doing it sort of the, I guess the right way, you know, <laughs> NDAs, confidentiality, super secretive, you know, trying to do everything behind the scenes. And then we I both remember, sorry, I remember of, some of our discussions where you'd be like, I, can, I can't tell you in a month's time, two months time, I'll tell you what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And we reached this point of like, all right, whatever happens, happens. If some wealthy person comes in, scoops our idea uh, and, and makes this happen before we can make it happen, you know, then at least the, the good of having this opportunity for college athletes has been created. So we gave Patrick the green light to do the story, spent a lot of time with him. He wrote about it. That, like I said, brought, the, brought Keith on board, brought the first wave of investment on board. And it was, about, uh, it was about 18 months or so after that. Well, really, it was about a year later. We had started going through the process of identifying people that we felt would be the right candidate for our COO position. And we wanted to have somebody that had a lot of basketball experience because one of the, the knocks that we had to that point, for those that have, have seen or met Andy, he is a, I'm going to get his height right, five foot seven economist. And everything that you might stereotypically think of when you think of, a, of an economist, that's probably Andy to a T. You know, he doesn't scream basketball star when you look at him. And I played baseball and, you know, we're two-thirds white in our team trying to recruit HBCUs at the time. And so there was just a lot of, um, 
from an optic, external optic standpoint, things we needed to address and basketball expertise was one of those things. And so we wanted to have someone that had either had front office experience or a former player that had a strong reputation off the court. And David was actually the, the top choice on, on my list. And we started tracking him the so his second run through with the Warriors when they beat the Cavs in the finals we had been tracking him throughout the last couple months of that season because we were hearing rumors this was going to be his last run and it was like I think the first week of August of 2018 and he announced he posted on Instagram his retirement message and one of our advisory board members brother was a former teammate of David's. So we knew oh. we could get to him yeah, yeah, right. when okay. we needed to get to him yeah. and, and get that meeting set up. And so once he posted that retirement message, I was within five minutes, <laughs> no exaggeration. I was on the phone with our advisory board member telling him, telling uh, Luke Bonner's his name. I told Luke, I'm like, I don't care what you have to do. I need <laughs> you to get me on the phone with David. And he was, he was actually in Africa at the time because he's got some clean, David has clean energy projects in, in Ghana. And uh, I think they're also now in Nigeria and maybe even the South Sudan. Right. And so he was over, build, you know, part of building a court, helping with, with a couple of villages that he's been to in the past. So he was totally out of touch, you know, in terms of us being able to get on the phone. But once he got back, we, we got on the phone a month later, we were, I flew out to the Bay Area, sat down with him. It, it's, it's kind of a funny story because he, he was about 45 minutes late to the meeting. And it's, he sits down when he gets there. And of course, you know, he's six, nine and a half and we're in Palo Alto. So, you know, he sticks out like a sore thumb. And he sits down and like having never met him, I can immediately tell like there's a lot on his mind. And he looks at me and he goes, I just found out my wife's pregnant. And we were not planning on this. <laughs> like they had literally just come from the meeting. So like, I'm sitting there thinking, man, if we can get over all of this, <laughs> if we can find a way to still have a meaningful conversation and you're still interested, like then, then this is meant to be sort of thing. And, you know, almost two hours later, we're still talking about it. And he was very engaged and, and checked all the boxes that we wanted to check. And uh, I knew we had a good thing going because before he'd even pulled out of the parking lot, he was already calling me to talk Amazing. more about it and ask more questions. Great. So um, it took about a month and a half from there to work through it with his, his management team and get all the details squared away, his attorney and all. But uh, yeah, so he's been with us since we announced that at the Monday before Thanksgiving. And so, uh, you got, so, 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 so then you got David on board and then you've now got quite a team, right? In terms of um, like advisory board people, members other people going going about it so do you want to just describe how that team's now made up and what that process was like because you've been going at some pace since since you were talking we were talking our annual conference there's you know you've been making really great progress yeah so it was actually it was the week before i flew to london last year uh it just so happened that that soledad o'brien who's on our advisory board um or sorry, it was the week after. So I got home, yeah. was jet lagged. And then I happened to see that she was in Cleveland. We got together. We've been talking with her team, her development. For those that don't know who she is, can you just describe who she is? Yeah, so Soledad, uh, superstar in my opinion. She, <laughs> former host on CNN. Uh, I believe she was also on NBC for a while, has now uh, broken away from from those, still as a correspondent on HBO Real Sports with with. Uh, with Gun Brian Gumble, and then she has her own production company, and also does all kinds of other things. She's she's got her own podcast now, and and has her own show on PBS uh, during the weekend. So she's she's very much socially aware. She's very uh, rights based in everything that she does. And we got together, and it was like two peas in a pod. And so. Um, expanding beyond just so her production company is developing a series on the creation of the PCL. Oh, very cool. We're also, yeah, we also have her on our advisory board. She's a, a great member for us in terms of strategy. We've got Mecco Karake who heads the, the Google play team at, at Google, or uh, sorry, the e-commerce team that runs the Google play store at Google. Uh, so when he's not overseeing his 
$14 billion e-commerce team. <laughs> he makes some time for me to talk strategy. Um, I mentioned Luke Bonner on the marketing side. Yeah, brother played in the NBA. He played overseas. So uh, another basketball guy that we've got involved. And then our athlete advisory board, you know, we've got uh, Terrell Owens. We've got uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. We've got uh, Champ Bailey, you know, so Mitch Richmond. So we've got Hall of Famers, both NFL and, and NBA. We've got TJ Warren, who best of luck to him with the Indiana Pacers and the, the NBA's restart. Uh, you know, so we've got a lot of athletes that experienced this system and want to fix it. And because we so, talked to, so, so on that, we talked about this because there, there was um, Andre Iguodala, who's on your podcast, I believe, right? Uh, yes. And- so do you want to shout out your podcast so those people can take a, take a listen? Yeah, so our, our podcast, Forward Thinking, uh, it's hosted by David and myself. We try to not make it a, a PSA for the, for the PCL. <laughs> really, it's a, just having interesting conversations with people that either are challenging the status quo, doing social good, bringing about positive change, and through that platform. Yeah, Andre Soledad, uh, we recently had Wendell Pierce uh, from yeah, The Wire just, and Jack Ryan. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a bunch of them to listen to. You've, you've flagged, them, flagged <laughs> them up to me and I'm, I'm looking forward when I go for a run later. I think I might actually give one a listen because... Um, Rosie I, Perez drops later today, which is oh, another uh, fascinating one. Um, and Bamani Jones and Howard Bryant, if you're really into the sort of black sport history movement throughout the last century, those were just fascinating conversations and their perspectives. Well, I think it's very, yeah, at this moment in time as well, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, no doubt they'll get a lot of traction and a lot of listens. I'm, I'm certainly going to listen to them. Um, and the reason I brought up Andre Iguodala was that he was on the Breakfast Club show in which he talked about the league. Because uh, I remember listening to it and just been, all oh, right, great. It's amazing. But it was surprising because the perception being that externally, being a, a quite a you know big basketball fan, he's a play basketball. And, you know, uh, not that it was ever going to happen, but having dreams of going to the NBA, the win was always, if you can get to the NBA, that'd be amazing. And they've got a lot of great processes in place and everything else. But he still indicated on, on that show that he wasn't happy with particularly that, that pathway from college to professional. And even in the professional, he said there was things that could be improved on, particularly around, I think he was talking about uh, club ownership or team, sorry, we call club, team ownership. Um, mm-hmm. it, was quite, it was quite surprising. I remember at the time thinking, wow, okay, you would have thought, multi-million paid basketball player doing really well you know you know an influential individual generally you know you would have thought he would have been quite happy with everything but he seemed like uh, at the time that he that that he was quite keen on what um, particularly because he's friends with David West what, what, what was going on with the PCO which I just thought was fascinating yeah and he he gave us no heads up like that was <laughs> <laughs> he he within the span of a week he did it on breakfast club and then during the the Raptors Warriors finals uh, he got asked a question about college sports and mentioned us there too. So we, we didn't know he was going to do either of those things. And he, you know, he's a much like David, very critical thinker. I mean, frankly, he was on that list too, but we knew that, that Andre was a few years younger. The odds of him retiring in time for us to make a, a run at him were, were substantially lower. So, you know, that, that entire team, frankly, as much, is I dislike complimenting them because they beat my Cavs <laughs> three times. Uh, you know, between Andre, David, Sean Livingston, uh, Steph, you know, even Draymond, you know, those guys uh, are really critical thinkers mm. about these models. And so, uh, you know, that sort of culture that I don't want to overstate, but that David did drive to some extent within that team, you know, I think just all the more reason why we wanted David and, Mm -hmm. you know, to have that, those people within his orbit that he has that make these critical, have these critical conversations around these models and think about how to approve them. You know, Andre, Chris Paul, who's another former teammate of David's are the two player representatives, president and vice president of the players association right now. And so, you know, those two are the ones that have really led the conversation on behalf of the athletes with the NBA in this restart, how they're going to respect the Black Lives Matter movement, how they're going to respect, you know, all that's going on globally, politically, and have a platform to, you know, express and not uh, in any way, shape or form compromise or take away from what needs to be said and what needs to happen right now societally. So, uh, you know, they're, they're just, they're a testament to 
to how well these players are finding their voices and feeling empowered within the NBA right now. Um, it's interesting as well on that point because there's there's not a there is a body, but again in, in college sport you don't have that union. Yeah, they can't. They try to unionize. They're not able to unionize. Um, they've got a representative body, I believe, that's starting to get some more traction, but it's not the same. Uh, which is, which again, is, is just an interesting dynamic of of of, of uh, US college sports. And so, what's interesting, and I think this is fair to me to say, and I'm, you know, I, I believe this to be true, so I'm going to say it. But one of the things that I find fascinating is that you've managed to get traction, and respectfully, right? It's not like you're hanging around the NBA stars. Yeah, you know, all the time, just as in casually, you know, he's not like you're an agent or stuff like that. You acted for various, you know, you know, actors and actresses and sports stars, but it's not like you were just one. It's not like you're in the middle of Hollywood or somewhere like that, or New York, where you're just going to all the all the right bars and stuff. And you know, the right people. Is it fair to say then that the one of the reasons that you've got so much traction with this amongst the players is because it's 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 not just a money play. Right. Obviously, you would like to think you're a good commercial model, but it's not just a money play, is it? There's way more to this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's that was how we, we were able to get David on board. And that was one of the things that he was most critically focused on was exactly what is the opportunity for the athletes that go through this league? How have you built this model that we're going to provide for better outcomes for athletes beyond just the fact, obviously, getting paid is great getting recognized for your value is, is a great thing, but there has to be more than that. And, you know, so our regular season, for example, and playoffs are played during the summer as opposed to during the school year so that our athletes during the school year, we're not pulling them out of class. You know, the typical division one NBA, or sorry, the typical division one basketball player in the NCAA is going to miss between 25 to maybe upwards of 40% of their coursework. And I don't care how smart you are. If you're missing 25 to 40% of your classes, you're not getting the full benefit of that class. Absolutely. And so for us, it was not just, okay, let's pay players. Cause that's pretty easy to do. Frankly, <laughs> you can just start a league and start paying them. And frankly, it would make the economic model make a little more sense. But for us, it was about from an academic standpoint, so we have our for-profit entity, which owns and operates all of our teams. Then we have our affiliated nonprofit entity, which provides scholarships to athletes to attend two-year, four-year accredited trade and vocational programs, online schools, so that on a go-forward basis, we know that they're going to get that educational opportunity and experience. And to keep the HBCU component alive, every city we chose has at least one HBCU in it. Several of them have as many as three or four that the, the student could potentially attend and, and still participate in our league. So we wanted to align in markets that had not only top choices, but a variety of choices. Because, Super interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, we're, we're, one okay. of David's criticisms of his experience and experience of other teammates is you get, it becomes a very square peg round hole. It's like, here's what classes you can take to minimize your overlap with practices, with your travel, with your games. And that coursework is not going to look great like, <laughs> on paper. That's how you end up with the, the UNC situation where you've got basket weaving and Swahili and the, you know, you walk into the classroom, you press the space bar and you get an A. Like, okay. I could have done that supposedly the, like that. that. That sounds great. <laughs> I would have taken yeah, that. <laughs> that. That's supposedly, and the, you know, people kind of joke about it, but like, that's the value that UNC is supposedly providing to that athlete to come to UNC. Yeah, so yeah. you're not really getting that 60 or $70,000 ticket price, whatever their out of state is now, you know, you're getting a heavily discounted value for, for your services. And that's yeah. the only value they can provide you. Yeah. It's interesting. So just giving them a freedom of choice. I remember there was a guy who was a Super Bowl winner on uh, I should probably say you know, Super Bowl champion um, uh, player who was uh, talking about his experience in college, about how he was treated by the strength coaches on their on the football team. And he said they'd follow him around everywhere with his with his, with his training plan, and he he'd get really annoyed because he'd say, "I'm not demotivated. I'm actually motivated because I'm trying to get a professional contract. I want to train. Why are you following me around everywhere?" But the thing that was interesting about it, he wanted to do, I believe, either something like, 
it was like a physics or something like that, right, that he was going to do. And instead he did a business course because he couldn't get the timing of the schedules to work around it. So now he's back at university doing the, 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 the course that he wanted. And that highlighted that the, I remember thinking at the time that seems problematic to me that if you're going to go to an academic institution and you're going to do well in an academic institution, you should probably do the a course that you actually really want to do and that you're motivated to do. Um, no, it's very interesting. So it's fascinating, and I like the I like the you know you know I'm I'm a big fan of of freedom of choice. I'm a big fan of, of social mobility. I like the fact that the, the, you can select where you're going, and and again it seems like there's there's you know it just creates another model right if you've got the you can have the ncaa model still running and you can still offer what you're doing it's quite interesting to see how that plans out and i said the data from it will be interesting so now we're at the point then so you've got this is this is this is say you've got good support from top players you've got a great team of people around you now um you know advisory board etc you're looking at it and you had worked out at the conference you were saying you'd worked out what to do around venues and the cities that you chose initially so is it right eight teams initially is that correct that is correct yeah so i said it i did read the information <laughs> <laughs> i was paying attention um so eight teams um and you worked out what to do with venues because that can be a problem obviously it can be extremely expensive in terms of infrastructure to have a location so do you want to just just tell people what you were going to do in that regards yeah, so I will say with everything that's going on, obviously for our listeners that are not in the US, we have not handled COVID well at all. <laughs> <laughs> and from a sports perspective, it's been especially disruptive. And we recently, semi-recently at this point, made a, a proactive decision that we're actually gonna play all of our games in a single location, even next summer. Because just looking at, what all is happening right now, we're seeing another pretty significant surge in cases uh, throughout the country. We did not feel comfortable with the idea, again, even 12 months from now, of having our players travel and having our ability to execute our operational plan be dependent on third parties. Because, you know, in some of the worst case scenarios where you start to have supply chain disruption with flights, with yeah, yeah. You know, just travel and things like that. Complete headache. We did not want, you know, Philadelphia to Atlanta is not a, a significant stretch, at least again, in the US from a driving <laughs> standpoint and flying standpoint. It's not the, the worst, you know, it's not New York to LA or anything like that. And, but that said, we still felt like it's gonna be a better, better, um, higher probability of success for us and less of a headache to just have everybody in a single place for this first season. And then in the second season, go back to eight teams, eight cities. So instead we're going to be playing all of our games. We've identified the venue that we think from both a protocol standpoint and just a, a bandwidth and capability standpoint will be sufficient for all of our teams to play in. Uh, Cause obviously we're going to, we're going to have 84 games in our first season. So wow. plus you've got eight, you know, yeah. between 84 games and eight teams practicing, you need a lot of court time. So we think we're, we're in the advanced stages now of getting squared away with the venue that we think can, can host and be capable of providing all that we need provided for those eight teams. Um, it is in one of our eight cities. So that, that also makes it exciting because it's, the city that it's in is central geographically to all of our cities. So we, again, we think it's, it's a good choice. It's a spot where kids, I shouldn't call them kids, 18 <laughs> to 22 year olds are going to want to, to live for a summer. Yeah. I think it's a good spot to live for a summer. So, uh, but that's probably been the most disruptive point of COVID for us is just rethinking the operational and logistical plan so that we're keeping our players and our staff safe. And, and with that, um one thing that i thought about is what's the lock-in for so you've got the scholarship fund is it that they have to sign for a three-year term or what do you do if people opt out or how does that do they forego their scholarship or they get part scholarship that seems like it could be tricky so again we understand especially this first group of athletes you know going a different path is there's always risks involved you know whether it's perceived risk or actual risk is up for debate. 
but but there's risk involved. And so the salaries are basically five years, but each year is is a is an option after the first season. So there is the ability for us to have some flexibility in terms of your basketball playing career. The scholarship though, and part of why I structured the company to be separately for-profit, non-profit, we don't control the non-profit, mm-hmm. is that when the non-profit provides you with a scholarship, the only way you forego the remainder of your scholarship is if you flunk out or you know fail Amazing. to remain in good standing at the institution. So we understand that to get some of these top players that we want to get, you know, we especially at the beginning, you have to go overvalue because of that risk. So uh, at least for, for that first class of players, and we're hoping for the entirety of, of the existence of this league, that your scholarship is five years guaranteed. Wow. Your salary is a different conversation, but the scholarship is five years guaranteed. I'm, I'm going to get myself training. Oh, put me down. Oh, I'm ready to, to dust off the cobwebs, do my plyometrics, and uh, see you get five years. That's really good. Um, that, that is really attractive. No doubt that is, you know, as you said, intentionally done so. That's got to be very attractive to individuals because it's like, you know, in theory, you get through the one competition and then, you know, you're going to be good and hopefully you'll be incentivized to go back because you earn some more money as well uh, from it, you know, and presuming it all goes well, but that's really, really good. That, that, that must be, how's that better? Let me ask it this way then. I'm assuming I'll ask you the direct question. Is it being well received by the people you're talking to at the moment, your first uh, group of athletes? Yeah. I mean, you know, recruiting is an interesting thing. I mean, again, this is probably something that's very foreign to people outside of the U S but this sort of, this very cutthroat atmosphere of, of college athlete recruitment. There's p- different players in the room, and I use players in the general sense, not the actual people playing on the court. <laughs> You've got you know the family, mom and dad, you may have an advisor, and you have the athlete. The athletes, you know, being a young 17-year-old, are going to be focused on the basketball piece. They want to know, you know, am I getting the best opportunity on the court? And so, you know, obviously we have to, to have well-received staffs. We have to have great brands, cool gear. You know, you've got to have all those <laughs> things that, that the kid wants to see. But then you've also got to convince mom and dad that this is the right choice. And that's where the educational piece comes in and why we wanted to have the scholarship program set up the way that we're, we've got it is because they'll understand and value more so than the athlete yeah. that, hey, look, even if you don't want to finish four years, five years and get your degree today, the fact that the scholarship will be waiting for you whenever that day comes that you want to finish it is a, is a significant value add yeah. in terms of our overall value prop to the athlete. So, you know, we, we've gone into it understanding. And then for the advisors, uh, you know, our life skills, personal development content that, that our foundation is developing that the athletes will complete in addition to their coursework to prepare them off the court in terms of leadership, public speaking, social media management, selecting and vetting agents, financial planning, you know, all those necessary elements that you need to be a successful professional athlete. Even if you don't recognize it at this moment, you need those things. Yeah, uh, so, a professional athlete, no doubt it will help you if you want to be a professional in the sports sector, right? Or if you want to be a professional for that matter, in many other sectors, they are great, <laughs> you know, they are great skills to have. Um, right, right. No, knowing how to be a leader, knowing how to manage your money, knowing, understanding real estate, like those are things you're going to yeah. carry with you. The more for the you talk about this, life, I'm, no I'm literally going to sign up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got, when's the next, when's it start? I'll see if I can, see if I can suddenly. <laughs> next like, June, you've got 11, 11 months, 11 and a half months uh, yeah. to, to get, get ready. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to like, uh, there have to be like way over personal best. <laughs> so that's not happening. But uh, no, that, that, I like the thinking behind it though, because and this is where you know, we talked about this earlier in the week when we had a brief catch up, right? It's a difference between, you know, I've seen many leagues come and go and we had the conversation about them at our conference. And it's a difference between if you actually have in genuine, and I believe you guys do have genuine intentions from the outset and values that are embedded in the organization, because immediately when that obstacle comes up, you don't try and fudge it. You go, oh, right this is how we can do it and make sure that we address that concern. And no doubt it would you say that the, 
again, David and the other players have have been, or how critical have they been in that approach? Yeah, it, you know, we have a lot of names that are involved, but to your point, the only people that get through the door that get to be involved with us are people that we see eye to eye with in terms of the mission. Like if, it's not a name grab for us, like mm-hmm. there need, and it can't just be a passive thing. We need to know, okay, if you're on our advisory board, or our athlete advisory board, like obviously I'm going to be cognizant of your time. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got a lot of stuff going on, but if we reach out and we have a question or we want your advice, I need to know that they're going to answer that email, pick up that phone, whatever the case might be. And so, you know, there are other people we could have gotten involved that would have been a name grab situation. And, you know, we decided to turn those, those opportunities away. And, you know, everybody understands within our team, it's a very collaborative team. We've certainly shifted plenty of times on either, you know, overarching important critical elements of our plan and smaller details so everybody knows they have the opportunity to speak up and say well this is let's think about it this way uh doesn't mean we're always gonna to make the shift but we will at at a minimum go through play out what that looks like and if we think it makes it better you know make the change which seems very sensible (laughs) you know you'd like to think other organizations take a similar approach but um you know i think we're seeing at this moment in time that's not always the case um and so the main revenue driver for this uh in year one is there any main revenue driver or is it just to get just to to, to do proof of concept as such um but do you have uh what's your broadcast i'm presuming broadcasting is going to be the main uh, revenue driver is that a correct assumption and if so yes yeah, yeah. i mean the again what co- probably the other significant thing that covid has sort of had this inflection point for us to really look critically at what we were thinking about there's some things that we want to do from a digital activation standpoint that might have seemed gimmicky before but now when you think about fanless venues or or uh, limited fan venues. Now it doesn't sound so crazy to do some of the things we wanted to try from a revenue standpoint that would look quite a bit different that we believe commercial partners would be interested in participating in and give them a more authentic way to be involved with the product. So distribution is, is a critical piece of it, you know, subscription revenue, you know, which requires a quality product people need to not only tune in once we need to have a stickiness factor involved there to keep them coming back and then uh you know the the sort of foundational partner partners your your apparel partner you know financial services is going to be an important one for us um just because again we want to have that legitimate outlet for our athletes to learn on that front uh the distribution partner our coaching staffs and so you know really it's about building building an organization that represents societally what's happening right now. You know, our, our uh, management team, our advisory boards, I would run that up against, in terms of diversity, I would run that up against definitely any sports organization in the US. Uh, and I think that we would hold our own, if not come out on top in terms of not only diversity of, of color and sex, but diversity of thinking and, and background. So, we, we've tried to really be uh, a diverse collaborative team that will come up with creative ways that we can generate revenue and not just turn, turn an idea away because it hasn't been done before. You know, again, I'm all, I'm, you know, like the word of the day is collaboration for me. And it's one of the things that we struggle with in the legal sector, as you know, um, right, is that some people want to collaborate more than others, whereas others see that as a, as a, uh, as a threat right or they can't the effect of their commercial model um on that point given that you're you know a challenger brand as i would say you know a startup um entrepreneur you've got that nimbleness of thought that you can do adjust and change do you still think that how things were done made limited your thinking slightly so given you were saying what seemed gimmicky before that you discount now given 
what's gone on, the environment's changed. So, well, actually, now we're, we're confident that it's not going to look gimmicky, or at least we can give it a try. So do you think that, you know, as someone I know that you, you're quite self-reflective, do you think that you were, even though you're quite, you know, I said, nimble with thought, trying to be adventurous, trying to be uh, bold in what you do, do you think there was still a bit of, uh, let's just say, legacy of what has happened in the past? That there was preventing your conviction in getting some of those ideas coming through. Or yeah, I mean, I'm ideas. sure that there was there was a moment or two because, uh, you know, I do love sport in its traditional sense in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm sure there was a moment or two, but I do know, also know there's an interesting thing about starting a sports league. I mean, I'm sure startups in general deal with with these sorts of things, but. It seems like when you start a sports league, the crazies come out of the woodwork. So we've heard some really nutty things over the, the last few years. I mean, just to give an example, we were pitched on the idea of when players lock up rather than a jump ball, have like a 30 second boxing match. <laughs> Perfect. Which we were. No, no, no risks there. <laughs> Right, right. And so, I mean, like, we've, we've had some, some really crazy stuff get presented to us. I would certainly watch it. I can tell you that much. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we, we very quickly passed on that one because we're like, well, from a, a liability standpoint, we, no insurer would come anywhere near us. Uh, and, and it kind of played, you know, again, going back to our mission and what we're trying to do, it's as much about athlete empowerment and sort of rewriting the perception of college athletes in basketball, which in the U.S. tend to be black men, you know, mm -hmm. 50, between 60 to 65% are of the Division One scholarship athletes in the country are black. And then when you break it down starters to bench players, it gets closer to like 80% are black mm -hmm. starters. And to feed into some of the um, racial stereotypes that, that exist in the U.S., having this boxing element to the sport just didn't fit what we're trying to do from a mission-driven standpoint of, again, empowering players and representing them in the best light possible uh, and allowing them to represent themselves in the best light possible, you know, by, by participating in our league. And so that's something that we've been hyper vigilant about protecting is a lot of people have, again, I go back to, if we just wanted to start a league where we could pay players, we could have done that a long time ago. You know, there's a lot of people that will come to us and be like, you know, you really don't need the educational thing. You can just drop that. That'll make your lives a whole lot easier. And I do agree. It would make our lives a whole lot easier. But then I think from a, a value proposition standpoint to the investment community, to our advisors, to the athletes, it becomes significantly less in the long run uh, to not have that educational component because that's, again, we're trying to build people as much as we're trying to build basketball players. And so you know for what? me, I've been very protective of that. Yeah, and I can tell, and one of the things actually, when you, you know, first said, you know, I've got this exciting project, this is what we're going to do. It's, you know, just to get where you've got now, for those that are listening, is some challenge, right? Is it is, it is a big, it's, in, in a crowded sport like basketball in the US, it's very successful both from the college's perspective and the professional perspective. To do what you've done and get traction, like legitimate traction from people and get interesting investment, et cetera, is you've had to jump over a lot of hurdles to do that. And so it would have been very easy to compromise at some point in time. But it seemed to me now that you're benefiting off the insistence of sticking to your, your guns in terms of not compromising on your value system, which is great to see, right? And it also promises very, you know, the, you know, it's much more exciting what you're saying, even now with the scholarships and stuff than it was when it was the HBL, in my opinion. It's like, like yeah. it, yes, it's a, you know, really, really good. So what would you say that, that is, um, so things that I'm, I'm curious about before we go is that, um, have you weeded out the crazies? <laughs> What's some tell signs you can share with us? Because I'd like to know too. Some of them tell on themselves immediately. <laughs> like in, in the first outreach, generally if I get an email that's all caps, I almost immediately send that one to, to the trash folder. 
Um, but, you know, again, we've had, we had an, we, there was one very, very early on. It was right around the time of the Vice Sports article because, you know, to our, our good luck and our good fortune, you know, we got Keith Sparks. You know, we got Mecco Karake, Will Bressman. We got that first group of people that got involved. But then, you know, I'm, re I'm now remembering a particular person that proposed something to us that on its face sounded great. And then when you started talking through the details with them, you know, you just be the three-year-old in the room, like keep asking why. <laughs> and very quickly it fell apart and it very quickly became, oh, well, really the purpose behind this is for us to make a ton of money off of these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, that that's the easiest way for me to, I've also got kind of now over the years, my, my BS meter tends to set <laughs> off pretty quickly and, and I pick up on it faster, but usually it's just keep asking why, or, you know, you know, and from that point, once they can no longer explain why, um, then, you know, either they haven't thought it through or there's an ulterior motive that mm. they don't want to tell you. I think that's great advice because like we've been dealing with some stuff, as you know, on this, on this, um, you know, over time where people talk a good game and at the back of it there's there's other things going on and it's really you know you see it in sports agency you see it all over the you see it now in in football in wigan right people acquiring football clubs right and you wonder what was going on with the due diligence there why weren't people asking enough wise i was like oh great you got some money we'll take it yeah off you go um not thinking about long-term value um what now then is the you know what's the big challenge for you at this moment in time obviously covid19 is huge um, but what's the, what's, what's, what's the challenge for you now? And then what we've got to look forward to, what, what's your sort of your runway looking like for the, for the launch? Yeah. I mean, I will say one of the bigger challenges, you know, not to be too, uh, self boastful, but I, I know how to connect with people in person. Like, you know, in that meeting, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, almost every person on our advisory board, you know, I, I was the one that went and met with them and convinced them. Yeah, to very, well, I know you because I know because we've, we've, <laughs> we've had a coffee and a drink and stuff like that. But you, you're, you're very um, present. Yeah, I like to engage with people and figure out, you know, not just what's the value in it for us, but what's the value in it for them to find, you know, I'm a big believer in the best deals, both sides win. Mm. You know, when only one side wins, you tend to end up with a situation of, of bitterness or of resentment and then in the long term it just doesn't work out well yeah. or in the, the in our case you end up with you know someone who's absently involved and then that doesn't help anybody and i'll say on that point though that depends what your perspective is but i agree with you i'm 100 with you on this and i've been listening to various negotiation books and stuff at the moment and again if your win is though to earn as much money as possible at someone else's cost right or to get one over someone then you may take a different view but you know, cause they care less about the resentment that's caused because the, for them, the win is the bigger thing. So, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that, that's been a challenge. I mean, not having that opportunity to go and <clears throat> to sit down with people to get that sort of connective point at such a critical part of the development of the league. When we're working on commercial partnerships, when we're working on our distribution deal, when we're developing our team brands, when we're interviewing coaches, you know, we, we do, we have not announced who it is yet, but we do have one of our eight staffs locked in. Cool. And it just so happens that that is the one guy that I got to meet with in person before everything went crazy. You know, we got the chance to sit down, have lunch. Uh, we, we live about six hours away of a drive from each other. So we met in the middle, you know, so it, it worked out well. We got the chance to really get to know each other. And then, so not surprisingly, that situation played out in a very different yeah. way than people who have only ever seen me on a computer screen or talked to me on the other end of a phone. So, I mean, that's a challenge, but that's a challenge that everybody in every industry is dealing with right now. So, you know, we're not special in struggling with that. Um, but, but otherwise, I guess it, the key point there, so we talked about this on some unrelated point, but on the, on the, you know, on the, the work we've been doing on dispute resolution with my Rosen QC and, and, and the working group with this like on, on uh, how to do with dispute resolution during COVID. And one of the things was about how do you assess witnesses and that being a like some people saying it's a big challenge. Some people say it's less of a challenge, but definitely that human element, you know, something I thrive on as well, like meeting people in person. And it's, 
yeah, you can get through it. And you, you know, particularly if you've got, if you know a lot of people, but if you're trying to make new relationships and new connections, it's that it's really hard to get a, a, a true feel for what someone's like. Yeah, when they're a bit grainy on a screen or... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, thing. I'd much rather be in London, us doing this over yeah, a pint. Exactly. Like, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, we are where we're at right now. Um, you know, but, but that said, going back to the second half of your question mm. in terms of what's next. So we will be announcing our, coaching, our first coaching staff soon. Uh, we're in the process of locking in a second one. Uh, we're going to be releasing the first four team brands uh, within the next six weeks. We're really excited about those. Uh, I don't want to, don't want to get people too excited, but <laughs> frankly, if you swapped out, so like if you swapped out our DC team or our, our Charlotte team with the Hornets and the Wizards, I don't think if you didn't know what the NBA was, I don't think you'd be able to tell the difference. Right. And so we're really excited about not only the, the storytelling opportunities we're going to get to have with our brands, but just the quality of, yeah. of the brands. So, um, which, um, you know, in Cleveland right now, super interesting. The Indians are going to be changing their name. And so yeah, yeah. I'm now getting to see publicly how <laughs> bad people are at coming up with team names and team brands. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's funny to know that, that when we first, first started that process month, you know, almost a year ago now, um, that the, some of those first names we came up with were not great. <laughs> I mean, the, there's always going to be situations where, well, where, some names suck and some names are really good. Well, with the, and, something uh, simple like a law in sport, right? You think it'd be a simple thing, but I literally wrote down a hundred different variations of all random names. And, you know, it takes a long time, right? Get feedback on it. What does it mean? What does it imply? What doesn't it imply? How, you know, how do people feel about it? It's a, it's a yeah, a true, it really is a true process. Um, and then you got to do domain searches, trademark yeah. searches. Yeah. Then you got to say, uh, and then that's just the name. Like yeah, yeah, then yeah. for us, now we have to get to the logo. Now we have to say, okay, this sketch work looks good, but we want to tweak this thing and that thing. And okay, now what colors are we going to use? So like, yeah. it's just this whole, it's been really fun. Don't get me but, wrong. I've actually been one of the most exciting, rewarding experiences, especially with the team that we have doing them. Cause we have uh, a creative designer from the NBA or from one of the NBA teams formerly who's doing our oh, designs cool. and then, our CMO, Wendell Haskins, who worked at Def Jam Records, worked at the NBA, worked at the PGA of America, has done a lot of really interesting branding things. So getting to work with them on developing these brands has been one of the cooler things I've gotten yeah. to do. Um, but it's also, it's just very challenging. It, well, Joe, it's very, if you, if you no doubt the, um, the issue you've got is to one of time, right? Because that's the fun stuff. Like, that's not the nine to, like, yeah, there is the nine to five in some ways, but you've got such a broad remit right because this is one of the things I, I was playing around took some time off this morning and did some web development stuff right that i was barely getting any time for and i loved it and i was like oh this is the cool stuff that i get to do that, that i rarely get to right right and that you have to do it because obviously it's part of the business no doubt in in, in your world right if it was a an, a normal day let's say whatever that is but if it was a day where you're just doing a normal nine till five and someone said to you do you want to you know, work with logos and colors and names and stuff. You go, great, I'll jump at the chance to do this for eight hours. But no doubt you've got a bunch of stuff that's going off at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the range of things that we can have in a given day <laughs> is, is, you know, a man of, a person of many hats. And, you know, whether it's working on commercial terms where we're, uh, pretty far along in a, in a collaboration deal on apparel, uh, right. for, for our teams. So, um, it'll be for merchandise off court, but so, you know, even chopping up categories in that way of saying, okay, let's look at this athleisure collaboration we can do. Let's look at developing these brands. Okay. By the way, we need to, to speak with this investor. You know, now we need to think about, you know, mocker, mocker, from a core mocker signs at, at Howard. So now we've got to do a public statement on this, yeah. this thing happening. We've got a Senate committee hearing, you know, all these different things that are going on that are, are both internally important and then externally tied to what we're doing that we, we are constantly having to sort of keep those balls up in the air. Well, Joe is super interesting. As I keep saying, it's my favorite word at the moment, it seems, or phrase. Um, I love it. I love the idea of it. Um, I like where you've got to already. I think it's awesome and uh, yeah, very impressive. And I, I particularly like this 
um, you know, foundation and the model of that, 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 that runs beyond. And maybe, you know, for those of you that are interested in soccer, or, or as we say football over here, maybe that's something that could be looked at more closely. I think that's the model personally I'd like to see happen. Uh, you know, some more alignment there in professional sports more broadly, and particularly from the academy system in football, I think it's something that could be could be looked at quite closely. I think it's a great idea, great model. Um, I wish you all the best. So when's the when's the big announcement? Is there any have you got any what sort of month are we looking at in terms of the next big announcement? Yeah, next announcement is gonna be in August. Uh we haven't exactly nailed down exactly what week because we are we're hoping to announce two staffs. And like I said, release the four first four. I can tell you exactly which teams we're releasing. We're releasing Baltimore, Richmond, DC, and Charlotte are going to be the first four. And I'm excited about that in for a lot of reasons. And then it just so happens our CMO, he also has a personal connection to Richmond and I'm from Richmond. So uh, great. Get, getting that brand out there is, uh, is going to be exciting <laughs> and fun. Um, hopefully all of my, my old friends from home will will appreciate <laughs> give you a shout out um now i wish you and the team lots of luck with that and thanks for taking the time out to speak um as i said such a great project and it's been brilliant to see the evolution of where it's come from as the idea when you're initially talking about it how excited you were then evolving into the pcl now and um i'm delighted as well that you stuck to your guns in terms of the uh, you know um the motivation and the values that you bring into it because that's the the win here in, in it all it seems to me that that yeah i wish you all the success commercially as well but if you can make the impact that you want then that is going to be something i'll be yeah real achievement so i wish you and the team all the best thanks so much hopefully see you in london soon or i'll see you in the states maybe um yeah yeah <laughs> we'll I, I appreciate it <laughs> you know we we obviously will take all the the good fortune and good luck that we can get and i really do hope we can get together in person sooner rather than later uh, I know what September would have been the, the annual yeah, exactly, conference. Yeah, yeah. Still, maybe, so, um, still, maybe we literally just, this is the thing at the moment, like you, right? We're speaking to venues. Uh, yeah. The normal venue where you've got a great relationship with them. We don't know. They don't know what's going on. We don't know really what's going on on a week by week basis. Cause the data changes all the time. So uh, as a, that's why I think for you guys, it must be something because for us, it's difficult. We're just talking about a conference, you know, not a, um, you know, not not a whole league, you know, repeating things. Just talking about one off. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge. But anyway, I'll let you go. Have a great what time is it there? It is quarter twenty after twelve. Twenty after twelve. Oh, look at that. You've got the rest of the data to 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 spend time on logos, of course. <laughs> not the <other laughs> stuff. No, but have a great uh rest of your day and thanks for making the time to chat. Um wish you all the best with it. Absolutely, Sean. Thanks for having me and uh stay safe to you as well as to the audience. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But remember, for all the latest information on the developments and legal issues in sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, LinkedIn, Spotify, Facebook, Instagram. You know, go to lawinsport.com, subscribe to our weekly email, subscribe to the, our sports and, and legal updates. And of course, if you like what we do, please do tell people about us. Please do share this episode and others on your social platforms and with your friends and wherever you are in the world, whatever time of day it is, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great day.